Are you ready? It's that time! Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Man Buns and Jesus. Uh, my name is Pastor Ben Olschlager, coming to you live from the snowy Great White North that is Lake Orion, Michigan. Yes, Josh, we have snow, and I enjoy it. Deal with it. Um, also, this isn't live. This is recorded. Well, yeah, but the majority of people listen to this within the week that it's recorded. That still doesn't make it live, uh, but okay. <laughs> We're still going to have snow at the end of the week. Um, hopefully. <laughs> with me, as always... Pastor Josh Laborious of Edgewater Lutheran Church in Eastvale, California. Uh, and today we are looking again at the book of Exodus. Um, and we're looking at the end of chapter 13 and at all of chapter 14, um, where just to summarize, because it's kind of a big chunk this week, we say, see some of the interesting ways that God leads his people. Uh, first and foremost, by sending that those pillars of cloud and fire to lead them by day and night respectively and then to lead them through the waters of the red sea as a way to to leave the land of egypt um god knows what he was doing uh but it was an interesting course to take and uh he certainly led them in a, a unique and powerful way in that moment and Josh, who do we have on with us to talk about the way that God leads his people in unique environments like these? Well, ladies and gentlemen, we we are we're kind of going to focus on the leadership of God's people. So um, one of the names that came to mind immediately for me was someone I respect a lot. He's had a lot of impact on my formation as a Christian and as a pastor. Um, but I am just one of what I suspect is either hundreds or thousands of people who have been impacted by his ministry. Uh, this is my grandpa. I know him as grandpa. My son knows him as great grandpa. Well, as much as my son knows anyone by English words. Um, and on his email signature, I guess, re the Reverend Dr. Gerhard Michael. Um, so thank you so much for coming on with us, grandpa. Happy to be here. Um, and what I want to kind of kick off with you is you've, can you tell us a little bit about the different leadership roles you held in your career? Um, and then also, which of all of those roles was your favorite one? Oh, I don't know what what to say, but I I think it's interesting how the Lord does uh, lead us. Uh, when I went to the seminary back in 1961, the uh, the thing that happens, you get assigned to uh, typically a church for field work. I don't know. How about you, young men? Did that happen for you as well? Yes, sir. Well, guess where, guess where I and five of my classmates were assigned? Not to a typical congregation, but to... The uh, All Nations, what what did we call it anyway? All Nations, we were down at Pruitt-Igoe uh, Projects. There were 
43 of these 11 story buildings downtown St. Louis. And the reason this mission got started there is because the pastor in the neighboring project, uh, Transfiguration Lutheran Church, was Reverend Hartman. The police were at their wits end. It had the highest crime, crime rate in St. Louis. And he said, well, if you want to do something about it, you got to let me start a church in there. And so they were at their wits end and they uh, allowed uh, a church plant there. And they rented the uh, community center in the middle of those uh, 43 high-rise buildings uh, to, to use their facility from 8 in the morning till 1 o'clock for the grand cost of, I think it was $15 a Sunday. And we had we had room in the auditorium room for, we could have handled uh, 800 people on chairs with a stage on one end. Now, we never had that many people, but the neat thing was on Thursday and Friday afternoons, there was a lady by the name of uh, Mrs. Beck who had activities for the children, told Bible stories, and they did <laughs> projects and the like. She had a volunteer staff that worked with her. And so we would have probably 40, 40, 50, 60 children coming out to, to Sunday school and, and, and the like. We had a few Lutheran, uh, Lutheran high school teachers that, that also helped out. And we used to count how many, how many adults from the community would, would we have in church? Probably maybe one or two. <laughs> That's the way we started. But the next summer, there were three uh, of my classmates that stayed. They couldn't live in those projects because you had to meet certain qualifications to, to do that. Um, but they stayed off-site. But by living down there, they established some more relationships. And uh, then we began to have apartment Bible studies. And that's where people came to faith. And then they started, when they came to faith, then they started coming to worship. And we started having people being baptized, people being confirmed. And we would have uh, adults in the congregation in the double figures, sometimes 12, 15, whatever. But that introduction to uh, church life was way different than most of my classmates had. But that was very formative for me to uh, what leadership is all about, where you listen to the community where you are. I can remember the, the man who was serving as our pastor was William Danker, who was professor of missions. And he had been the missionary, first missionary over in Japan. And um, he sent me out to make calls on some of the parents of the kids who were in Sunday school and I went to the first apartment of one of the family I said this is stupid for me to go making calls Sunday morning at nine o'clock even though the kids had been sent to Sunday school the parents were in no no condition to welcome a visitor and so I went to one of the storefronts just outside of the project and the next thing you know they were having me wrap up the 
children's message or the, the Sunday school class and making a presentation to them. <laughs> things are things are just different. Uh, and, it's, it, and it's interesting. The challenge happened for me on my vicarage because I was sent to a suburban congregation in Baltimore that had been in the inner city, but when the inner city was changing, they left the inner city. And one of the books that I had been reading in my seminary, first two years of seminary, was The Suburban Captivity of the Churches, where the, the, the church that had fled from the inner city and just come to realize that the church needs to be where the people are. Yes, it needs to be in the suburbs, but it also needs to stay in the in the changing city. Uh, the gospel is for everyone. And uh, I think those those early years in the seminary were very formative. And then my first call was to Japan and as a missionary. And the uh, first two years were language study. And what my wife and I did, we said, if we're going to really connect with the people in Japan, we need to learn their language so we can hear what they're saying and respond to their them in their language. And so that's what we really focused on the first two years. And the crazy thing was is how our experience shaped us. And you think of the Israelites there in, in Egypt, I can't help but think their experience of being enslaved at first Joshua was the uh, Joseph was the one who who really was their benefactor, you know, when he came in and and said, "There's seven years of plenty. We need to we need to save up during this these years of plenty, so that when these seven years of famine come, we're ready to handle the handle that that challenge." Uh, but after years elapsed, the next thing you know, the Israelites were enslaved. But if we are sensitive to our setting and our surroundings, that helps us respond so that we can lead in a way that people will uh, respond and be blessed by it. But our experience was the, the English congregation just wasn't seeming to meet our needs while we were in language study. So after about six, seven months, we went and visited all the Japanese congregations in Tokyo, and then we adopted one. So the second year of our language study, we were plugged into a little congregation called Ikegami Lutheran Church, and that helped us get ready. For then we were sent up to the northern island of, of Hokkaido, and we served in the uh, congregation of uh, Takigawa, Takikawa. And it was interesting. Um, some Sundays, those first first year, yeah, sometimes we only have two, three, four people and uh, you know adults in the congregation. But by the time three years were up, we were nearly always in double figures. Sometimes we get up to, to twenty people in in uh, in the congregation. And we did the same thing we did in the inner city of St. Louis. We ended up doing Bible studies in people's homes. People were 
curious about the, the, the faith. And here again, God was at work in that situation. What had happened the year before we arrived there, the previous missionary didn't have a single person show up for worship. But then he was taking the youth group to the missionary. They had two cottages on the Japan Sea for missionaries to get, you know, uh, rest and renewal, R&R. But he had taken a youth group over there. And one of the Japanese young kids, uh, I suppose a high school student, some, went swimming in the Japan Sea where there was tremendous undertow. He got into trouble. The missionary sought to save him. The boy was saved, but the missionary lost his life. And that was just, just devastating, of course, to the missionary's family. But the Japanese could not get over that. Here is an outsider. Uh, the word for a, a foreigner in Japanese is gai jin. Gai is the, the picture is for outside. Jin is the picture for person. So a foreigner is an outside person. I mean, it's just obvious. It just, you know, strikes you. But the fact that this missionary, missionary Daryl Quigley, had given his life attempting to save a Japanese boy just made an impact on that community and so when we came they were served that during that interim year no missionary resident was resident there there were two what we called prince of peace volunteers teaching english as a second language in some of the businesses and colleges in that area so there was that presence and then another missionary served for six months and a japanese pastor served a little flock there for six months but then when we came and were resident there, there was a, a welcome to us and uh, an openness so that uh, when we uh, talked to people, they were you know, very gracious and, and very welcoming. But it just, it just strikes me that when you talk about leadership, it's the Lord provides the welcome. The Lord provides the uh, anticipation or what what's ahead of you and as you are open to that and respond to it it's amazing how he blesses what you're seeking to do and i think of how where my wife and i said when we were in language say we're going to immerse ourselves in that responsibility we were doing a lot of other stuff we immersed ourselves in learning the japanese and that helped us now, we weren't fluent or whatever, but there was a, if you can believe this, guess who was in that community? Not a Christian, but I would guess if there were, this is a town of about 45,000 people. If there were a half a dozen people who could speak conversational English, English, that was probably the max. But one of them was someone who had read are you listening? All the plays of Shakespeare in English. That's some dedication. That is I just, have not done in, that. <laughs> no, no. Incredible. But he and I had a deal. We met every week and we studied Japanese for an hour. And then we studied 
the King James Bible because he wanted he wanted to know. And now for me, I wasn't reading King James Bible anymore. We were using the Revised Standard Version because it was so much easier for us to understand the the, the English. But but that's what that's what our agreement was that he would help me with my Japanese. I would help him with his Jap with his King James Bible. So, but the Lord provided the what shall I say the resource for me to continue to grow in my understanding of the uh, Japanese language, uh, and I think that's that's what happens uh, again and again. And the crazy thing was with us coming back to the states, there having the president of the Japan Lutheran Church was Kosako Nao, and he was an expert in both English and Japanese. And he um, actually developed the Japanese Bible, or the dictionary from, from the uh, Hebrew into Japanese, and uh, a very respected uh, scholar. He wrote a letter of recommendation for me, and I also had a letter of recommendation from Professor Danker and then from David Schuler, who was the man who went from our seminary in St. Louis, and he was the associate director of the Association of American uh, Theological Schools. And then I was admitted to, uh, to Harvard and did a, a year there and got my Master of Theology in comparative religions, studying Japanese religions and history and background and so on, to go back to Japan. And what happens in the middle of the year I was there, but there were major budget cuts from our church body to the Japan Lutheran Church. So we didn't get back to Japan. But we ended up in uh, a large congregation in, in Wisconsin and there, my vicarage congregation experience was helpful, and so I was prepared prepared for that. And that was uh, that's just the way, I guess I would say, the Lord prepares us step by step for the challenges that are before us. And the my experience in the inner city, my experience in Japan, I think really prepared us for the ministry and. Warner Robins, Georgia, and then as, as district president. And today, I see our congregations, no matter where we are, they're in situations where we're on the mission front, where, where I've served the last, now I'm out of, since June 4th, that's where I, I kind of formally retired from up in Dahlonega, Georgia. But that's a town, a lot of people have never heard of it. And I, I bet, Ben, have you ever heard of Dahlonega, Georgia? Nope. <laughs> Dahlonega, Georgia is uh, the first major gold rush town in this country. 1828, 21 years before California had their gold rush in 1849. And the gold on the Atlanta capital, that's Dahlonega gold. 97% good pure gold. <laughs> and uh, for anyone who's wondering, 
if you drive, uh, if you take 75 all the way through Georgia, like if you were going to Chattanooga or Nashville, um, you'll know you're around Dahlonega because there are, for whatever reason, just a ton of carpet and flooring stores. I can't explain it, but that's my, my memory of driving through Dahlonega is seeing all of these billboards for carpet and flooring that for whatever reason, Dahlonega said, we're going to sell all of the carpet and flooring in the world. Well, that's, that's really Dalton, <laughs> Dalton, Georgia. <laughs> but Dahlonega is about 15 miles from the beginning of the Appalachian Trail, too. That's the another thing. And it's a home campus for the University of North Georgia. But seven, you normally think of Appalachia as a old Bible Belt. The uh, You do the, uh, what shall I say, surveys of people and so on. 75% of the people in Lumpkin County, which is where Dahlonega is, the uh, county seat, 75% of the people have no affiliation, religious affiliation at all. That's mission field. And uh, that's what our whole country is, is becoming. I don't know what it is out in California. I know that in the state of Oregon, one of my district president friends that was 20 percent that was all that was churched and uh we have a mission field no matter where we're we're located and one of the things that was uh, disappointing to me when we were starting the call process to find a successor to for me at Delonica St. Peter Lutheran Church I called the Senate of St. Louis I said this was a, a year ago how many missionary pastors do you have, uh, you know, ready to be placed? He said one, and he's already slotted for a place in Colorado. And I asked the, the man at uh, Fort Wayne, I knew these men from when I was district president, and he said, we have perhaps two. And I thought both seminaries had, I think, 31 or 32 graduates ready to be placed. And I said to me, that's just sad. We need to have all 62 of the grads ready to be placed as missionary pastors because no matter where we are, we're we're needing to reach out to people because many times uh, people aren't passing the faith on to the next generation, even their own kids. So, but anyway. I'm just sitting here confused on how one we were at the SEM not too long ago. I don't know how you get a designation as a, a missionary. I thought that was the job for all of us. All right, it is. That's because the they standardize the <laughs> curriculum now. Everyone graduates with the same class load, whatever. Huh. I'm curious, <laughs> but not curious enough to like call and ask. I would guess it's probably the, the list of guys that have done something more mission related with their like vicarage or because there was a guy that was a class ahead of us that did one of those two-year international vicarages with a missionary in yeah. Sri Lanka. Um He's out you get like one there. of those every couple of years. But I don't I don't know otherwise what the designation would be. Yeah it's 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 perhaps my raising the question of a missionary pastor not communicating 
what we're looking for. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, are you are you asking in this vi uh, video that we're making what what contributes to being a leader? Well, I think that's part of it, but I think also just with clearly all of your experience in leadership, um, some of the things that stand out to you, but what I hear as you, as you've shared so much of your story with us, and obviously I, I have some background knowledge being the grandson, um, is when we look at this, this narrative in Exodus, when we see what God did for his people, um both and i see this in in a couple of ways because you see this blatantly obvious god is leading his people where god has this this pillar of fire this pillar of cloud and like if you see a pillar of fire that is big enough to lead an entire nation that is pretty you're like that's something that's you don't see that every day and then when the red sea splits Again, that's like a very obvious God leadership thing. But then you also see how Moses leads the people in what might be a less obviously God way. And I think what you drew out in what you shared about your experience in the inner city and your experience in Japan and your experience moving back to the States and with the congregation there is how sometimes God was preparing you and preparing um, I was about to say Joan, but that just feels wrong. Preparing grandma uh, for ministry and leadership in all these different places. Sometimes it's as obvious as a pillar of fire, but sometimes it's it's much more subtle, which I think is, is probably a good lesson for our listeners to take away is that um, never discount what God is doing in your lives because you never know what he's preparing you for down the line. Um there, there are all sorts of instances where you might have a life experience where it doesn't seem like much. It doesn't seem like something that's really worth noting, but later down the line, it comes in really handy because you now have experience or you have a skill set that allows you to step in and lead God's people in, in a particular way. Um, ben, I, you, you look like something's marinating up there. Yeah. There is something marinating, and I'd, I'd like to throw a question back to you, Gerhard. Uh, so one of the chapters that we're looking at here is the crossing of the Red Sea, where the people of God show up to the, the edge of this, what would have been for them insurmountable body of water. There's no way you can swim across this. They don't have near enough boats. Um, like, this is their demise, unless God does something miraculous. Have you ever in your ministry led your people up to the edge of something that you were just like, I don't know how we're going to cross this. And then God showed you the way. I, uh, I don't know if I would say that there's something I can point to, but it's, it's interesting when you pose the question that way you think of the being there at uh, at harvard and taking these classes i was you know did a took the the you know the qualifying tests in terms like the japanese they said well you can take whatever you want and that's how good the japanese had been 
the preparation that I had in Japan. And I can remember the professor I had with um, uh, uh, taking a reading course in social studies. Uh, and he said, where did you where did you learn your Japanese? <laughs> That's what he asked me. But. And you think, OK, we set we set a plan in place, you know, and this is what we were planning to do. But suddenly there's a roadblock and you think, you know, well, where are we going? And I know that it was interesting when that happened, the letter that came was, we're going to ask all the missionaries that are on furlough just to stay on, stay back in the States. We'll save the most money that way. And I said, that doesn't make sense because missionaries were paid according to the years of experience you had. If you're going to save the most money, then you ask the people with a lot of experience to, to go back home and let the young guys keep on the, on the payroll. <laughs> and then they, they said, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but that was the e that was the easy thing to do is to ask all those who were on furlough and those going on furlough, but they 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 were not able to say you know let's look at this in a a what shall I say a, a strategic point of view the the church body had just become an, a national entity where they were the uh, the national church body you know. That where the baton had been passed from the missionary group to the the formation had been taking place over a few years, but I think it was like 1970 or 69 where it had been formalized that the Japan Lutheran Church was really the church in place over there, and uh, so you just you you accept that, and then when you uh, you roll with it and it works out and my name had not been circulated you know for for a call until i found out that was all this kind of unsettledness it was kind of ambiguous through i think until the end of middle of may and i finished my coursework and i had my what shall i say defense of my couple papers that I had written about the Soka Gakkai beginning of June and, and had successfully defended that. And then I, I got a then I got a call. It happened just like that. So everything came together. So I don't know, Ben, if that's a response to, you know, how things were unsettled. You, you faced a, a question of how it's going to work out, but it it did. I know I had some classmates that aren't at, at Harvard. Aren't you going to stay and, you know, just keep working on a, toward a PhD? No, that wasn't in the, in the, in the works, but I think what, what, when you look back, you can see we can plan sometimes and the Lord changes the plans. Mm -hmm. And uh, he works it out. 
and sometimes you make decisions you know you you wrestle with it and and i think after you look back you said well that's the way it was supposed to be like i had the um appointment to be the director of missions back uh, 19, uh, 1989 it just kind of came out of the blue and i wrestled with that for about six weeks but finally i just it didn't become convincing that i should take that call so i i turned it down and continued to to serve there at warner robbins and then i ended up i wasn't looking to be district president but i ended up getting elected and i felt well, i need to take it so now i don't, don't, I don't know the answer to your question ben but <laughs> i'm a little curious uh and i i don't know how much you can tell us because i don't know how many I'm just going to ask a question and let you respond however you want, but can you tell us a little bit about your experience leading as a district president? And what what does it look like to lead God's people kind of from, uh, how shall we say, a thousand feet up as compared to congregational leadership, which is right there on the ground? Well, what I think I sought to do on the district president level is in many ways what I thought sought to do on the congregational level one of the things that I felt I wanted to do as a pastor was not just take care of the take care of the flock and feed them you know with uh, worship that has content and uh, and this is one of the things I think I just assimilated from my dad he was someone who had content in his sermon but there was law and the gospel he sensed the need for for the forgiveness and for the renewal and the strength and then there was the proclamation of the word that you felt forgiven and 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 renewed and strengthened uh and the care of souls you know visiting the sick and the shut-ins and encouragement but i i felt one of the things we needed to do was to, to teach our people so that they sensed uh, God's plan of salvation and that he was enlisting us to be part of that plan and that he wanted to use us to serve and to witness and to pray and to be involved. And so on the congregational level, one of the things that I felt was important was really to implement the priesthood of all believers so that it wasn't just the you know, pastor doing the ministry and people being consumers, they were being participants. And so on the district level, that was one of the things that I really sought to implement is how, how can we empower our pastors and DCEs and, and leaders to go ahead and and implement the priesthood of all believers and in turn reach out and, and become more missional and not just maintenance, uh, keeping things going as they were. And so I, I think sometimes one of the things that we lack is a vision to look beyond just the immediate needs and 
you look out five years down the road or whatever. And that, I think, sometimes is a gift that God's give to some people and not to others. And not everybody has that has that gift to be visionary um, and to be forward-looking. And when we're not forward-looking, I think many times then we end up being fearful and uh, we turn in on ourselves and we're not visionary. And you think of you think of the story of Israel. You know, they got through the Red Sea when Moses was up on the mountain too long. The next thing they panicked and they they got a hold of air and the next thing they're building a calf to 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 worship. And you think you had the spies going going check out the land and well Caleb and Joshua said, Yeah, we can take them. Lord's with us, and yet the ten prevailed. And what happens as a result of them prevailing? Forty years of wandering in the wilderness, and it's just sad, you know. When you think the vision was there, the Lord made us a promise we could take the land, but because they didn't trust the promise, they ended up wandering for forty years. I would like to just interject, and this is totally unrelated to anything we've discussed in this podcast, but keeping in mind the spies of Israel, especially Caleb and Joshua, saying, we can take them. Um, I contend that any trouble my brother Caleb and I get into together, being Caleb and Joshua, is kind of my parents' fault for naming us Caleb and Joshua. They kind of, they literally <laughs> asked for us to, you know, have an attitude of, yeah, we can take them. We can go get them. <laughs> um but the original Caleb and Joshua both said that faithfully. Hey, we're in we're in the ballpark, Ben. Um, your name is Benjamin. You're one of the partners with Judah and the southern two tribes that hung in there 125 years longer than the northern tribes. That's fair, but Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin also had a lot of problems. <laughs> you don't have those. Um but what what I think is really cool with that attitude with the time you served as district president um, is this idea of we're lifting up not just people necessarily that have whatever academic qualifications or certification, but we're lifting up people to serve in these different roles guided by this vision. Um, and I think we can tie that back into our reading because the reality is no matter what leadership roles we take, whether it's as, as pastors or as lay people or, you know, whoever you are, ultimately the one who is, who is moving hearts and minds and who is acting is God. And when we look at it from that light, I think we can be emboldened in taking on those leadership roles wherever we're coming from, because we know that ultimately God is the one doing the work, um, which I think encourages us to say, yeah, we're going to lift up God's people, no matter where they're coming from, to these roles that God has been preparing them for the whole time. I think one of the murderer that... to lead thousands of people, like Moses, right? What was what? that? What did you say? Including lifting up a murderer like Moses to lead thousands of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe let God do that one, actually. <laughs> 
No, I think, <coughs> I think sometimes, you know, we talk about faith, hope, and love. I think sometimes we minimize the the power of hope. You know, when you when you think of hope in the biblical sense, it's not I hope it doesn't rain. Hope is really something that is going to happen. And it's guaranteed by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can be people who are are buoyant in our hope. It's going to it's going to happen. And because of that, we can be people who, in the face of difficult situations and tough odds, we can face forward with hope. And I think that's that's something probably that we need to, to lift up more often than we maybe do, is the hope that we have because of what Christ has done and risen from the grave. And he's now on the throne, ruling over all things. And uh, make our plans, but they're contingent plans, but his plans are permanent. And if God can raise Jesus from the dead, who are we to tell him no? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. So, uh, Ben, if you're okay, I think that's actually an excellent note to start to transition toward closing on is that my reading yep. room well yep go um, ahead so grandpa something we didn't warn you about and don't feel bad because we never warn any of our guests about this even though maybe we should um is we like to end any every episode with uh with takeaways and what how we kind of define that how we approach that is if you could impart one thing so one sentence one little one nugget of information or wisdom or uh, application or whatever, if you could have the listeners stick one thing that stays in their brain after they're done listening to this, uh, what would that one thing be? Um, and you, if, if you have something ready to go and you want to share it, you can go first. Otherwise, I'll make Ben go first and give you time to think. Let Ben go first. <laughs> <laughs> so, Josh, I think my takeaway, and I this is a combination of what we see from Moses uh, as God elevates him into leadership. Um, some of what your grandpa shared with us about um, him going from um, like going through through seminary and going uh, through his ministry and being elevated to circuit visitor or not circuit visitor, district president, um, all of these things. Um, and then to some extent, I know from each of our lives, like, what it looked like to go from what we were doing in the ministry. Um, in each of those cases, there wasn't necessarily a strong drive from our own hearts to do ministry. For me, it was prodding from my grandmother. I know from you, it was uh, a number of the voices around you during college that were like, yeah, math's cool, but like, go serve Jesus. Um, yeah, math's I know cool, you... I guess. <laughs> you heard your your district saw that you were uh, a worthy leader, um, even if it wasn't something that you were seeking out yourself. And God, like I said, God chose a murderer in Moses to lead his people. Um, he certainly wasn't looking to lead them at the time. Um, and those are like those are four examples of people that he has lifted up 
to be leaders in his uh, in in his people and in his world. Um, and I think that's a a good lesson for us is that if someone is seeking out roles of leadership, they may not be the one that God is really trying to to push into those roles, but instead, we should be looking for those people in our contexts, like you did, Gerhard, during your district president days, to elevate into roles where they can help uh, promote the things that God is already doing on earth and, and keep the ministry going. That's my takeaway. I know it was kind of long. Well, I think even with Moses, when he was raised, guess where? In Pharaoh's house. Right? Yeah. I think that was preparation for what God was going to have him do later on. And I think I think in many ways the Lord prepares us for the work that he's calling us to do. And to me, that's that's very what shall I say? Encouraging, empowering that he prepares us for what he wants us to do so that we can lead with uh, some, certainly with, we want to lead with humility, but with confidence because of the hope we have in Christ. I think one of the uh, hymns that your grandma, Joshua, has really embraced is Christ be my leader. And uh, when we let him be our, our leader and Lord, it's amazing what we can undertake in his name and for his sake. And, uh, I think uh, to close us out with one last takeaway is just, I want to point everyone back to the, the place we came from in Exodus. The fact that there was this, these supernatural things happening as God led his people and I mean, largely as God led his people through the ministry of Moses. Um, and the reason I want to draw our attention to that is just as a reminder, you might not always feel equipped. Moses certainly didn't. But that doesn't mean that God isn't going to use you for whatever leadership role you, you are being pushed into or called into. Um, so have confidence, not in yourself, but have confidence in the God who promises to work through us. Um, and with all those takeaways, this has been uh, season five, episode, I don't know, six or something of uh, Man, Buns, and Jesus. We're glad that you uh, joined in. If you enjoyed the episode, go ahead and like it. If you're on a platform that enables such things, go ahead and share it with a friend or a family member if, if you think it was worth sharing. Um, especially if you have a friend or family member who maybe is in in or contemplating a leadership position where where this might be a helpful conversation for them, go ahead and share it with them. Um, also, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast because it helps our egos. And sometimes we could <laughs> we could use the boost, <laughs> I guess. Um, if you have ideas for an episode or you have a topic or a host, uh, a guest host that you'd like us to bring on, um, please just let us know. If you know us personally, you can shoot us a text or an email. If you don't know us personally, we have a Facebook page that gets checked occasionally that you can message and we will see it. Just know we are trying to work our way through Exodus. So unless we're really excited about your topic, it's going to have to wait until we're done with Exodus. And finally, I, I haven't been plugging this as much, but we do have T-shirts available. 
So if you want to buy a t-shirt with the silhouettes of our face on it, you can do that. And if you do that, please send me a picture of you wearing the t-shirt because honestly, I think it's just going to be hilarious if anyone actually buys one of these t-shirts. So uh, you can find those at edgewaterlutheran.org slash gear. You probably have to scroll pretty far down the page because it's like it's it's pretty much just a joke that this t-shirt even exists. Um, but it would be an even funnier joke if someone actually purchased and wore said t-shirt. So with all of that, it has been a pleasure speaking with with all of you, speaking to all of you and uh, brothers and sisters, go in peace and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.